Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God stands forever. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lamb in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Boys and girls, if you'll come up to the front so I can pray with you before you head to Story Keepers or out to nursery. Come on up. Great to see you all. You all well? You all lost your tongues? Yeah, parents have. All right, well, I, I'm going to speak on behalf of us so that we can all pray to God that he'll watch over us and bless us as story keepers today. So let's put our hands in the air, down past our eyes, close our eyes, talk to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for what we've been able to think about already during church, singing your praises and praying to you. We thank you, Lord, for story keepers and for nursery. We pray for Miss Tara and for... Uh, for all who will be helping in the nursery, that you would watch over them and especially watch over the children, that they would learn about you, uh, love you more because of what they learn, and that they would love one another well and listen well to each other and to Miss Tara. We thank you for the opportunity to be together today and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can head out. pray uh, for God's help as we think about today's passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this chapter of Isaiah 40, something of a mountain peak within 
the scriptures, if it's appropriate to speak that way of any passage, but one that has truly encouraged so many people over the years. We pray it would be an encouragement to us today as we think about uh, the gospel according to Isaiah in this passage, that it would change our perspectives, uh, reassure us of who you are, and give us uh, a new confidence going out into this new week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may recall that for the last number of years, uh, every January, I've attended a pastor's sabbatical retreat uh, in Savannah. Uh, it's called the Savannah Sabbatical, very imaginative title. Uh, every year, it's about 15 or 16 guys who get together uh, from um, mostly the same guys from different parts of the country. Some come from overseas for it, uh, but we all come together in order to study God's word and to worship, to eat, to pray, to laugh, to cry, to discuss. Uh, and I tell you all this because at last January's gathering, uh, which some of you may remember because Tara and I uh, tried to fly home, uh, three flights got canceled, so I, you watched my sermon on the screen that day as we were driving home from Savannah. But at that gathering, we were studying Colossians every morning. And on the first uh, morning, we read these words from Colossians 1, 3 to 6. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And those will be familiar words to some of you, I'm sure. But Scott Haifman, our instructor, uh, having read these verses, honed in on those two words, the gospel, and asked us to consider what, what did Paul mean when he wrote those words? And that's a good question to ask because often we're very consumed with how we might define what the gospel is, and we forget that actually the much more important definition is what we find the Bible says the gospel is. But even that question has its challenges because from what we can glean, Paul did not have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in front of him as a reference point uh, for the Gospels. So the question is, well, what did he have? And Scott Haveman's answer was this. When the, when the Apostle Paul referred to the Gospel, he had in mind, at least in large part, the Gospel according to the prophet Isaiah. And that's because of all the Old Testament writers. It's Isaiah who uses the language of gospel, of good news, of glad tidings, more than any other Old Testament writer. He does so in five places, and over the remaining three Sundays of Advent, we're going to be looking at three of those. And the first of them comes in this great passage of Isaiah 40, uh, specifically in verse 9 that Sonia just read for us, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And notice right away what those who announce the good news are to say. Behold your God. They're to tell people that the good news is actually God himself. As John Piper entitled one of his books, God is the Gospel. So if we want to understand the Gospel this morning the way the Apostle Paul understood the Gospel, we, we start by taking a long look at what God is telling us about himself in this chapter. 
And here's why that's important. If you take a look at this picture on the screen, I, I came across this picture a, a while ago. It's what is called a gust front uh, associated with a cyclone that occurred off the western coast of Australia a number of years ago. I have no idea what everything that goes into that extraordinary phenomenon. But it's one of those wonders of the world, one of those works of the creator displays that, that you know, cause you to sing or to say or to think, you know, God, how great thou art. How amazing you are that you can do something like that. But here's the thing. That view of God's glory, as good as it is, is not sufficient. It's not enough because you and I need to see more than just seeing God through our own eyes. If we only see God through our own eyes, we actually diminish him without meaning to or even realizing it. Because eventually we start to define God and make him more in our own image than his own. And that's when we start to become particularly prone to struggling in our lives and losing perspective and sinning. We need to see God through God's eyes. And when we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else in the world and for the better. How we see ourselves, how we see our relationships, how we see our struggles and our work. And Isaiah in this chapter gives us good news by helping us see God through God's eyes. And he does so by pointing us to uh, one person who fulfills three roles, and these are our three points today, the one who is the coming king, the one who is the powerful Lord, and the one who is the tender shepherd. And we wrap all that up together. It gives us uh, what will be our sermon in a sentence today, which is this, that God brings comfort to those who wait on him by means of both his power and his tenderness. God brings comfort to those who wait on him by means of both his power and his tenderness. So let's think first about the coming king. Look again at verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now for many of us, we can't hear these words without immediately thinking of comfort ye from Handel's Messiah. The text of Handel's Messiah is drawn from the King James Version. And that's helpful to think about here because the, the ye here, comfort ye in Handel's Messiah, isn't thankfully a reference to Kanye West, who apparently goes by ye, but tells us that this command is actually being issued to a group of people. It's a plural. So in the South, those of you from the South would say, comfort, comfort my people, y'all. Northern Ireland, we would say something more along the lines, comfort, comfort my people, usins. But notice, not only is it plural, but there's a repetition here of the command. Not just comfort, but comfort, comfort. And you say, why does he repeat that? It's not necessary for us in, ter in terms of the understanding of what this sentence is saying. Well, he does it for the purpose of comfort. It's like when we might say to a loved one, there, there, as we pat them gently on the back. God wants here to bring his people comfort. Now, the question, of course, that inquiring minds want to ask is why do, does this people, do this, the, the people, need comfort? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you were to glance back one chapter to chapter 39, you'll discover that things were not looking good for the people of Judah. The time period is prior to the period of Nehemiah that we've been studying over recent months. It's the end of the 8th century B.C., because of Judah's rebellion against God, the prophet Isaiah had come to the king at that time, King Hezekiah, 
with his particular version of there may be trouble ahead. Here's what the trouble is, 39, 5 to 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Judah was to be sent into exile far away in Babylon. However, as chapter 40 begins, that exile has happened and is now coming to a close. So that as we turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40, it's this massive fast forward from Israel and Judah facing the mighty Assyrians in the 8th century BC to now the exiles in Babylon in the 6th century BC. It's still the same Isaiah speaking, but it's almost as if in a, in a prophetic dream, Isaiah was lifted up into the he- God's heavenly court to hear Judah's predicament being discussed. And then in chapter 40, almost Rip Van Winkle-like, Isaiah wakes up to what to him is a new historical situation in the future. He becomes aware that those who would be sent into exile are going to be despondent and bitter and discouraged and disillusioned. There seems little, if any, hope. They'd been rebellious and God had judged them for it. But through Isaiah, God is going to speak up and give his people just what they need to hear. Just in case we miss the tenderness in this repeated command of comfort, the idea is repeated in the second command. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the core of their being, to their will, to their choices. Speak and tell them that their exile is over, that their sin has been paid for. Here was the good news of great comfort. Well, at this point, someone heeds the instruction to speak. Look at verses 3 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the round, rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's the reason the people can be comforted. That God himself is returning with his people from their exile. God is the answer to the people's needs and their problems, but he's not just going to send them his best wishes or his blessings. He's going to bring them. And so this voice says to the people, you need to get ready. We need a little bit of background to get a sense of what Isaiah is telling us here. Back in Isaiah's day, there was no Department of Transportation or local public works division. There were no paved roads because there wasn't the equipment and there wasn't the money. Roads were simply what you would refer to as those tracks which wagons just kept on using, which people and animals kept walking on, and as such they weren't much more than ruts or tracks on the hard-baked ground. If you were going along one of these tracks, you came to a boulder, you'd just have to go around the boulder. The track took you down into a gully, you'd just have to take your wagon down into the gully and try to get it back out again the other side no one built roads back then unless you were a king and not just any kind of normal run-of-the-mill king a king king an emperor type king so that when that sort of king was going on a journey they couldn't just head off at a whim the roads wouldn't have been able to bear them 
Their entourage wouldn't even fit on these tracks. So when the king was going to go out on a journey, he would send his heralds and his engineers out ahead of into the locales, the villages and the towns where he was planning to go. And these heralds and engineers would go to these towns and would say, listen, the king wants to come through your town. You don't realize what an honor this is. So you've got to prepare the way. You've got to take down all those boulders. You've got to fill in all those gullies. You need to prepare the way for the king. But look at the language here. It's not just boulders that need to be taken down here. It's mountains. It's not just gullies that are to be filled in. It's whole valleys because this is God the king who is coming. And he means to be noticed. This is not a secret mission. He intends for everyone to see his glory and his majesty and his splendor as he comes. So the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God the king is coming. Obviously, this is a pretty big deal. So in verse 9, again, more instructions are given. Go on up to the high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Here is good news. Here is gospel. Behold, your God is coming. But Isaiah then seems to almost anticipate some doubts, some queries, some objections. Because these exiles, after what they've been through, they're not interested in empty comfort. They have no stomach for false hope. So it seems almost as if there's two unspoken questions at this point that Isaiah wants to answer. First of all, does God really have the power to do what he's describing here? And secondly, does he care enough to do it? To answer those questions, Isaiah is going to show us exactly who this God is that he does have the power and he does care. Verses 10 and 11 then are sort of like an overture to the symphony here. They give us a taste of what the rest of the chapter is going to describe. Look at those verses with me, 10 to 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah highlights the two aspects of God he wants us particularly to behold here, God's power and his tenderness. His power, the sovereign Lord comes with power, his arm rules for him, and his tenderness, he comes as a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms, carrying them close to his heart, gently leading. This is God through God's own eyes, sovereign power and tender shepherding. Now, what Isaiah then does through the rest of this chapter is sort of flesh this power and this tenderness out for us. So as we move to our second point, that the powerful Lord, we're reminded how how incomparably great God is in his power. And just if if we've forgotten about it, what a great reminder Isaiah does. I'm going to give give us a sort of whistle-stop tour here through what Isaiah tells us to take a long look at. First verse 12. Isaiah asks, do you realize that all the waters of all the oceans and the lakes and the rivers and the streams are held like a tiny pool in God's cupped hands? He says, do you realize that God marks off the heavens by the span between his outstretched thumb and his little finger? Do you realize that all the mountains fit on his domestic scales? So that Isaiah takes in all the whole creation at a glance and says, who else but God? 
could weigh this and measure it and determine it with perfect precision and ease. And he says, this is your God. Verses 13 to 14, there are more questions addressed, this time about God's wisdom and his goodness. Isaiah wants us to see God's complete self-sufficiency. When he created everything, he needed nothing. All the ideas were his alone. Every tropical fish, every function of gravity, all the complexity of galaxies. The pagan gods in Isaiah's day always worked by committee. God, the creator, comes up by, with it all by himself, needing no one else. Isaiah says, this is your God. Verse 15, he shows God's incomparable power compared to the nations in comparative terms. They're like this one little tiny drop in a bucket full of water, like the dust that a chemist might wipe off her scales before measuring a new substance. And Isaiah picks up this theme again in verse 17. He says, all the nations are as nothing before God. It's not a dismissal of our value to God, but rather it notes our comparative stature. God is not contemptuous of the nations, but they're so insignificant and small compared to him that he is not in the least overawed or intimidated by it. And down in verses 21 to 24, Isaiah picks the theme up yet again as he contrasts God's incomparable power to the power of princes and the rulers of this world. Verse 22, we see God enthroned, sitting enthroned over the whole earth, exercising his total rule and authority. And within that rule, he raises up leaders and he brings them down again according to his purposes, according for his glory. To you and I, the power brokers of this world can seem so formidable. And to God, they're like little seedlings, scarcely planted and with zero effort on his part. God merely blows on them and that mere puff of air becomes for those rulers this raging tempest driving them into oblivion. Isaiah says, this is your God. In verse 16, Isaiah moves to humanity's religious efforts. He says, there's nothing we can do which would adequately match the greatness of our creator. That even if we were to cut all, down all the trees of the forests of Lebanon and build an inferno with all the, her animals on top, such a sacrifice would be puny. This is a death knell to all our do-it-yourself efforts and ways of salvation. All of our efforts to try to coerce God, to twist his arm, to meet his needs, to climb unto his good books. And onto all of those, Isaiah takes this big stamp with red letters and says, insufficient. Not enough. Here too is a reminder that we should never let the greatness of the God we worship slip in our thinking into the greatness of our worship of God. Let's never leave here on a Sunday morning saying, wasn't that worship wonderful? But rather be saying, isn't the God we worship wonderful? Behold your God, not your worship. So God is incomparably great in his power. And just think about this. You know, if more of us had this God at the center of our being, wouldn't we be a lot less concerned and stressed and overwhelmed with life? That he's at the very core of who we are and in a relationship with us? But what do we do? We, we think we can come up with some alternatives that might seem a little less threatening. We'll do more of our bidding. We'll meet our needs as we define our needs. And the Bible has a word for those alternatives. Those of you who've been here for a while know exactly what that word is. It's the word idols. 
So look what Isaiah says here in this regard in verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It's brilliant here. Isaiah actually doesn't criticize idol making here. He just describes it. The words he writes here would have, would have worked as a caption for a National Geographic photograph of idol manufacturing. But that doesn't mean that his description doesn't come absolutely dripping with sarcasm. I say, Isaiah says, just make sure you, you add some gold to your idol. It's important that it has some value here. And we'll put some silver chains on it. People have jewelry, so God should have some too. And he kind of anticipates, oh, you're poor and you can't afford gold or silver. Oh, well, well, you'll be wanting a wooden idol then. Just make sure you look for your wood carefully. Some people have gone and grabbed any old wood. Next thing they know, their God is termites. That's not good. Get a good craftsman. Some people couldn't make a good God if they, their life depended on it. Oh, and lastly, he says, don't forget to nail it down. It can be very embarrassing if your idol topples over. I mean, that's, that's, stability is important in this regard. So it's all sarcasm, and it's Isaiah's way of saying, do we have any notion of how foolish we are when we look for alternatives to the living God? Behold the living God, and don't be so stupid to think anyone or anything can even come close to him. So here is God in God's eyes. Here is the way we need to see God. Here is Isaiah's answer to the first question about God comforting his people by coming as the king. Does God really have the power to do that? I think we've been given an emphatic yes here. But there was a second unspoken question that Isaiah wanted to address as well, which brings us to our third point about the tender shepherd. Does God care enough about us to bring us this kind of comfort? Now, Isaiah started to answer that question back in that overture of verses 10 to 11, that yes, he does care. And we know he cares because he's the tender shepherd. But it's in this last section that he fleshes that answer out. Look at verses 25 to 27. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So the question is, is God so great that he really doesn't need to and doesn't bother with people like you and me? You know, is our relationship with him such that if we were to give him a call this afternoon, it'd be a bit like calling your phone company or financial institution where you're put on hold and you listen to incessant canned music on repeat, only with God you get to listen to hymns and at this time of year a few carols. Isaiah's answer, of course, is no. Listen, he says, this is the God who brings out the stars, and then he calls them each by name. Astronomers estimate that there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone. He calls them by name. 
So why, why would you ever think that you don't count? Why would you ever think that he doesn't intimately know your name and your family and your street and your town and your workplace and he doesn't know you and all your foibles and all your worries and all your stresses? Still we complain. I mean, verse 27 here really has to be read in a mopey voice, but my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God is not fair. And you'd think after all we've beheld about God in this chapter, he would be totally justified here just to say, stop whining. But he doesn't even do that here. He doesn't remove himself from his complaining people, but he just keeps moving towards us with compassion and commitment. So look at these final verses, the best known verses of the chapter for sure. Have you not known, have you not heard Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The God of incomparable power and strength condescends to give that strength to us, to the weary, to the tired, to the weak, in this act of incomparable comparable tenderness. I mean, we, just, we lack this kind of strength on our own, don't we? We're constantly stumbling under the pressures of life. We feel like failures. Now, Isaiah says God doesn't test our strength before he gives us strength. Rather, he gives strength to those who admit they're weak. They need strength. He says, I'd love to give you strength. He gives it, Isaiah says, to those who wait for the Lord. It's one of Isaiah's favorite words in this book to describe our correct posture response to God. We wait on the Lord. We wait patiently. And as we wait patiently, we trust restfully and we hope expectantly. That we're people who do not live by explanations. We live by promises. We don't figure God out with our brains. We submit to him by faith. Because we know that alone he is our strength and our confidence and our hope. But look again at how Isaiah finishes in verse 31. I, I, I love this because I wonder if you've ever thought that this verse just strikes you as seeming to be a bit backwards. You know, wouldn't it be a better finale to move in the other direction? They will walk and not faint. They will run and not grow weary. They will soar on wings like eagles. Isn't that the better picture of the victorious Christian life? And Isaiah says, well, thanks for your suggestion, but no, I'm going to keep it the way it is, thanks. And I'll tell you why, he says. Because the greatest evidence of God in your life and mine is your daily perseverance in faith and obedience. Your daily perseverance in faith and obedience. So of course, there are going to be times of running and soaring. But the greatest evidence of God in your life is that you put one foot of faith in front of the other today. And then you do it again tomorrow. And you do it every day of this week. And then you just keep going. It's to live the life, as Eugene Peterson put it, a life of long obedience in the same direction. That's the Christian life. To keep trusting God and obeying God 
in the mundane details of your everyday life. And out of the tenderness of a shepherd's heart, God is promising here to give you all the strength you need to do that. God announced to this people in exile, here's your comfort. It's the gospel. It's good news. I'm coming as the king to bring you out of exile. You can be sure I will do it because I have unsurpassed power. I have incomparable tenderness. Does God bring them out of exile in in Babylon? He does, as we've been seeing the last few months in Nehemiah. But here's what we saw also in Nehemiah, that deliverance from exile in Babylon brought some comfort, but it was not on any stretch of the imagination on the scale that is pictured in this chapter. And that's because the fulfillment of this promise of comfort apparently would not come until later. And it did. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, we find this old man called Simeon in the temple. And Luke tells us he's there every day because he's waiting. What was he waiting for? Luke tells us he's waiting for the comfort, for the consolation of Israel. And then one day Mary and Joseph come into the temple with the infant Jesus and Simeon sees them and he takes Jesus in his arms and he basically says, here it is. Here's the comfort. And in case we were wondering whether that's actually what's going on here, Luke confirms for us that that's what Simeon had discovered because in chapter 3 we read these words. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, that's Jesus, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the wicked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Do you see what Luke is saying? He says, do you want to know who the good news according to Isaiah was really all about? Do you want to know who the coming king ultimately is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one for whose coming the world needed to prepare. It's Jesus' coming that would reveal God's glory and salvation to the world. Because you see, it's Jesus who's the deliverer of all who trust in him from our true exile. Because without intervention, all of us are in exile from God too, the consequence of our rebellion against God, just like it was for the Israelites. Because as stupid as it is, we create our own idols through whom we try to find comfort. Whether that's money or family or jobs or sex or power or just stuff, But the king has come to deliver us, to bring us true comfort of restoration and forgiveness and salvation. And he did that not just by coming as the king, of course, but as the king who is our shepherd, the good shepherd, as we read in our words of encouragement today, who lay down his life for his sheep. The shepherd who would suffer and die in our place for our rebellion, who in essence would suffer exile in our place separation from God for the first time in eternity so that we lost sheep could be brought home. These are the words 
that you and I need to hear today. Good news for rebellious but repentant people. Behold your God. This is your God, the coming King, the powerful Lord, the tender shepherd, the God who brings us comfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the invitation to behold you this morning and for the incredible, marvelous ways that you give us all that we need to behold about you, about the gospel, about Jesus. We pray that this does, in a sense, give us the, the armor, the equipment we need for the week ahead. Forgive us for how we do run to idols. Forgive us for how we doubt you so much of our lives. Help us this week to behold you, the coming King, the powerful Lord, the tender shepherd, and may we draw great comfort and encouragement from that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.